This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, human rights in Central America, seeking justice on two of the biggest cases of the past 35 years. But first, Sierra Hancock is here with our weekly review of news from around Latin America. U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry is expected to officially reopen the U.S. Embassy in Cuba today, Friday, August 14th. It's the first visit of a U.S. Secretary of State to Cuba since 1945, and the ceremony will mark 54 years since the embassy closed in the face of tensions between the United States and Cuba during the Cold War. However, controversy swirled this week over who was invited to attend. Cuban dissident groups said they had been told they were not welcome at the ceremony. This follows a crackdown on dissident groups by the Cuban government in the past week. Cuban officials arrested 90 activists at an anti-government protest. Mark Toner, a spokesperson for the U.S. State Department, says the department did express its displeasure with this crackdown on free speech. We're not going to shy away from addressing these issues to, from, and discussing human rights. It's, it remains a challenge in the relationship. However, Toner would neither confirm nor deny that the Cuban government had mandated that the dissidents could not come to the official reopening ceremony. Although the U.S. government has traditionally supported dissidents and free speech activists in Cuba, those groups have roundly criticized the shift of the Obama administration to open regular diplomatic relations with Cuba. Dissident groups plan anti-Cuba rallies in Puerto Rico and other parts of the United States this weekend in response to the ceremonies. Kerry will meet with dissident groups and civil society activists during his trip to the island. Embassies are definitely in the headlines this week, including the Ecuadorian embassy in London. That's where WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange has stayed for the past three years, an asylum case which has kept him from extradition to Sweden. This week, Sweden dropped its pursuit of sexual assault charges against Assange, although it still wants to question him regarding allegations of rape. Meanwhile, the United Kingdom plans to file a formal diplomatic complaint with Ecuador for giving Assange refuge. The British government has spent almost $19 million on security details watching the embassy to make sure Assange does not escape. Assange and the Ecuadorian government contend the Swedish extradition case is merely a cover, that he will eventually be sent to the United States to face punishment for posting U.S. classified documents online. New evidence this week that Peru's legendary rebel group, The Shining Path, is still out in the Peruvian Amazon, opposing the government. Peru's government had triumphantly said it had stamped out the Maoist rebels 20 years ago. However, this week, the government said it captured the two leading rebel commanders and that these captures meant the end was finally near for the rebels. This follows news from last week about a government rescue of more than 50 people from Shining Path labor camps. Some said they had worked as slaves for the rebel fighters for decades. The fight against the Shining Path left more than 70,000 people dead in Peru in the 1980s and 90s. (laughs) 
The U.S. Supreme Court ruling on same-sex marriage from earlier this year gets a special celebration in Puerto Rico this weekend. 60 gay and lesbian couples plan a huge group wedding ceremony in San Juan. Couples from around Latin America plan to attend, not just Puerto Rican couples. So partners from the Dominican Republic, Cuba, and Venezuela also plan to take part in the ceremonies. However, organizers of the event say it won't be all rice and bouquets. They have asked for a special police presence at the event because they also expect protesters. For Latin Pulse, I'm Sierra Hancock. We want to acknowledge the contributions of Sierra Hancock to this program during the past five months. This is our last week with Sierra anchoring our newscast, and we wish her luck as she completes her degree program at Webster University. Also, a special nod to one of our longtime listeners in Kansas City who requested our special focus last week on Columbia and helped connect us to the right sources. If you'd like to send us your suggestions or comments, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Now our focus this week on human rights in Central America. Next week, a judge in North Carolina in the U.S. could make a decision that would push forward prosecution on one of the most important human rights cases from El Salvador's Civil War era, the massacre of Jesuit priests and religious workers at the University of Central America in 1989. Prosecutors in Spain want to hold Colonel Inocente Montano and other former high-ranking military officials responsible for the crimes. Many of those killed were Spanish citizens. Montano has been in a U.S. prison because he lied on immigration documents, and now Spanish authorities want him transferred to their custody. We talked to Hector Silva about the legal issues. Silva is an independent journalist who has written a series of articles about the case for Salvadoran news outlet La Prensa Grafica. Silva is also a research fellow at American University's Center for Latin American and Latino Studies. We reached him via Skype in San Salvador, El Salvador. Coronel Montani, a former uh, milita- Salvadoran military officer that is uh, in jail uh, and that might be facing charges actually for the killing of six Jesuits, uh, priests and two of, of their aides here in El Salvador in, in November 1989 in the, you know, by the last days of, of the war. That's one of the most important, I mean, most uh, sad uh, but important massacres of the Salvadoran War, and according to a number of analysts, uh, mainly in the United States and in Europe, that, that was the massacre that uh, uh, started the end of the, of the Salvadoran Civil War back in the, in those days. Um, Colonel Montano uh, was uh, the Vice Minister of Public Security back then. Uh, he was uh, the third in command of the Salvadoran army and um according to the lawyers that have put a, a, a that they put a complaint in the uh, in a spanish tribunal since the, the the five of the jesuits are were spanish citizens uh all the high command of the military back then has responsibility in those killings and and the thing is that um in 2008 uh these lawyers uh the complaint in uh, representing the families of the Jesuits in, in Madrid, Spain, and a judge of the um, Audiencia Nacional, which is the uh, uh, Supreme Tribunal uh, in, in Madrid, 
receive the case and open a, a process. And it is important to say that most uh, uh, of those military officers are still alive, living freely in El Salvador, because uh, when the uh, war ended in, uh, in my country, uh, the Congress passed an amnesty law that forbids uh, the sovereign authorities to prosecute any um, um, officer, any government officer or official or any, uh, for that matter, a guerrilla commander that uh, have uh, committed war crimes. N nonetheless, before that amnesty, there was a trial here against uh, nine military, low to uh, mid to low level military uh, soldiers and officers who were the, the, the ones that pulled the trigger again, against the Jesuits. And the families have, have always said that uh, justice can only be brought to this case if the actual uh, intellectual authors or the ones that uh, planned the massacre were brought to justice. That, that, that was impossible in Salvador due to the amnesty law. Uh, but when the, the case was opened, in, um, it, was, it was also, it seemed back then that it was not possible because due to the amnesty law also, and when the immigration judge in Boston, and this is January 2013, sentenced him, he uh, took into consideration his past, his military past, and that he, he uh, had to uh, be in jail or serve a prison term to Massachusetts law because he had committed uh, crimes, according to experts that were witnessed uh, in, in that immigration case. So he was sentenced to 21 months in jail. Meanwhile, uh, and, and while he was in jail, uh, the government of Spain, uh, the extradition request issued by Judge Eloy Velasco in Madrid, who's the one that's uh, processing the Spanish case. And now uh, next week in North Carolina, where the prison where Coronel Montano is, we, we're, we're, we have a hearing, an extradition hearing, because the government of the United States through the Department of Justice accepted the Spanish request, and we we will we will uh, I mean Montano will will face an extradition hearing next week. And the importance of this, Rick, is that if he is at the end extradited to Spain, he will be present in the um, courtroom and with a one of all the accused present, the judge will be able to open uh, uh, the process to summary stage. Which and that what that means is that all the evidence that's been collected in the since 2008 when when the case was open will be public, and there's a lot of things that will be there about what happened that day, not just about the Jesuit massacre, uh, but in the final days of El Salvador and and how uh, the army was responsible for you know a lot of awful massacres that happened here. You talk about the importance to El Salvador. Isn't some of the importance also that this is a shift? in policy for the United States to uh, being allowing these human rights cases to go forward on former military officers from Central America. Yes, you're absolutely right. I think uh, very important to me is that the, the, all of these armies of the 80s, not just in Central America, but in, in, the, in, South, in all of South America, I mean, Latin America, South America, Central America, the Caribbean, where most of them uh, backed uh, uh, by the by by successive United States government, um, Nixon administration, the Reagan administration, all of all, all the way from the 50s to to the the end of the 80s and even even the 90s, and and most of these armies were you know uh, very important violators. I mean, these armies killed people, tortured people, disappeared people. You know all the stories about Chile, Argentina, uh, 
uh, Guatemala, El Salvador, and 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 yes, this this was to my uh, for me, I mean, as a as an analyst and as a Salvadoran, uh, one of the most obscure uh, chapters of U.S. foreign policy towards this part of the world. And but since uh, the end of the '90s, when you know, because of what was happening all around the world, you know, including the the failure of the Soviet Union, the end of the bipolar world as we knew it back then, the U.S. you know start didn't have an interest to really go forward with what, the, what President Ronald Reagan called the, the last frontier in Central America, meaning, you know, not letting the influence of the Soviet Union pass Nicaragua or El Salvador. And, and, and because of that, supporting, you know, all these um, um, armies and, and, and officers and, um, and, and, you know, protecting them, actually. Uh, but we've, we have, you know, gone through a lot, uh, but we have, you know, moved forward. I mean, we meaning these countries, but also the United States. I was present in December of 2000, and, no, let me see, November of 2013 in the Museum of the Holocaust in Washington, D.C., uh, in which one of the, of the speakers was the then head of the uh, Human Rights Department of the Department of Homeland Security. And he in there what this change of policy meant was that the U.S. wasn't to uh, allow uh, any of these criminals to be living freely, you know, in life in the United States of America. And he mentioned the Montano case and the Jesuit massacre as one of the cases that DHS was, you know, then working on. And if you look at the, what the U.S. government in general has done in this case, it's really, you know, something that, that you, can, you can actually appreciate appreciate that the, the, the shift that you're talking about. It's been, you know, a number of agencies from, you know, the FBI uh, locating Montano, uh, DHS and ICE, you know, putting together the immigration case, the Department of Justice moving forward with the extradition process, which is very complicated in terms of, you know, bilateral uh, politics uh, and foreign policy. So, yes, I mean, it, 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 it is a change. If we see Colonel Montano extradited to Spain, to face these charges that deal with human rights and deal with justice in this massacre that happened in the 1980s, the Jesuit massacre. What do you think the reaction will be there in San Salvador? Sadly, uh, Rick, I don't think it it will have. Well, my first impression is it will it won't have a. Um, uh, immediate uh, consequence in terms of jurisprudence or in terms of the fight against impunity. Well, on that sad note, thank you so much, Hector Silva, an independent Salvadoran journalist and research fellow with American University's Center for Latin American and Latino Studies, joining us today via Skype from San Salvador, El Salvador. Thank you. Bye. We'll be hearing more from that interview with Hector Silva later this month. Coming up, the search for justice in Guatemala. Stay with us. Democracy is synonymous with independence. Independence is synonymous with emancipation. Emancipation is synonymous with sovereignty. Sovereignty is synonymous with superiority. Superiority is synonymous with arrogance. Arrogance is synonymous with domination. And domination is synonymous with dictatorship. Dictatorship always finds its way. Amnesty International. Learn, indignate, act. 
Welcome back to Latin Pulse. This week, as we're focusing on human rights, we look again at the case of general and former dictator Efrain Rios Montt. Rios Montt stands accused of ordering the killing of more than 1,700 ex-Chil Mayan Indians during Guatemala's civil war in the 1980s. Next week, courts in Guatemala stand poised to decide if the former dictator is competent to face trial on the human rights charges. Doctors for Rios Montt say he suffers from dementia. Two years ago, a Guatemalan court found him guilty of genocide and other human rights abuses. But Guatemala's top court overturned that verdict and said he could not be retried for two years. But that retrial will not begin again without a ruling on the former dictator's competence. We spoke to Kelsey Alford-Jones between her travels back and forth to Guatemala for her analysis. She's the director of the Guatemala Human Rights Commission. We spoke to her via Skype at the commission's offices in Washington, D.C. Yeah, well, as you mentioned, this case has drawn on for a very long time, and I think it's worthwhile mentioning that the charges were filed against him in the year 2000-2001 for acts committed in 1982 and 1983. So this case has ultimately gone on for over 30 years. Um, It finally went to trial, and in 2013, as you mentioned, in May of that year, uh, a Guatemalan court found this former dictator, Efrain Rios Montt, guilty on charges of genocide and war crimes. And he was sentenced to 80 years in jail, which is pretty historic, given that there's really no other country in the world who has um, found a former head of state guilty on charges of genocide in national courts. So Guatemala g- kind of set an international precedent there, um, which is also surprising surprising given the very high level of impunity uh, across the board in the country, both for crimes of the past and the present. Unfortunately, um, due to immense pressure after that ruling came down, the constitutional court in Guatemala overturned the sentence on a technicality. And since then... So since May of 2013, there has been this ongoing and very kind of drawn out legal battle between the public prosecutor's office and the organizations representing the victims from the Ishil region and Rios Montt's lawyers. Um, And Rios Montt has been also backed by many of the kind of very conservative military-linked parts of Guatemalan society that really have no interest in seeing justice done uh, for this type of crime during the internal armed conflict. This year, it was a, the retrial was supposed to begin in January. Uh, it did not. Then there was a battle around um, which judge or judges would overhear uh, the trial, and that took a while. And finally, it was ruled that it would begin on July 23rd. Uh, in during that period of time, uh, Rios Montt's lawyers requested that the Guatemalan Forensic uh, Science Institute do a test and see if he was actually fit to stand trial. And they were arguing that he was not well enough to appear in the courtroom. And this state body came back and said, you know, we, we've investigated the health of Rios Montt and he is too senile or suffering from dementia and he will not be able to stand trial. And we're asking that this, uh, and his lawyers requested that the trial be uh, postponed once again. Um, And what played out after that is is kind of almost like a soap opera, I would say, where um, the Guatemalan prosecutors and the the victims in the case are 
very interested in moving forward and feel that these continued delays are a violation of their right to justice. And the the lawyers are very uh, entrenched in trying to impede any forward movement. And so what happened on the 23rd is that uh, the trial opened, everyone gathered in the courtroom, and uh, Rios Mont did not appear. And they said, well, you know, he's too sick. And the court asked for him to be investigated by a new set of experts and a team of uh, human rights workers from the state of Guatemala, the government of Guatemala, um, police and others were waiting outside uh, his residence to take him to a psychiatric facility to investigate once again whether he was actually suffering from dementia. They would not let him in and his lawyers rushed to the court to get a um, essentially an injunction from an appeals court to say that he was not uh, fit to be moved to this psychiatric ward. Um, and the court, which apparently the judge was a friend of these lawyers of Rielsmont, ruled that the uh, the move would have been arbitrary, illegal, and abusive. So as it stands now, Riosmont is still at home. The trial has not moved forward. And it's looking increasingly like the this, um, this case, which deals with the most serious human rights atrocities, uh, that we know as as uh, human beings and what we've seen happen in our societies around the world and of of torture and sexual violence and massacres and acts of genocide um, has simply become a a kind of soap opera where real response lawyers are using every tool at their disposal legal and otherwise to prevent any further movement in the case I'd like to deal with one more chapter in the soap opera before we get to the the wider picture, and and that would be this first commission ruling, this judicial commission that ruled whether the former dictator is actually incompetent or not. Isn't there yet uh, another appeal to either the constitutional court or the Supreme Court on, on this wider issue of competence? Isn't it possible that this former dictator uh, could not stand for retrial because he'll be viewed as too old and incompetent, 89 years old, and not facing those charges? Yeah, well, at this point, I think that the question remains open. I believe that there's still the possibility for the prosecutors to appeal the current ruling that he will not be moved to the psychiatric ward. And there may be a, a, a recognition by the court that at this point, he is not fit for trial. And as you mentioned, he is 89 years old. And it's he is suffering from various health challenges. The question is whether um, those kind of d the diseases and other challenges that he's facing from a health perspective are enough to prevent the trial from moving forward. And that uh, there has been no final resolution from the courts on that specific issue. Some would say that this is just an attempt to run out the clock on this case. As you said, it's it's been gathering steam slowly since the year 2000. And certainly these are events that happened in the 1980s. So uh, a long time for justice and maybe no justice then in Guatemala. Yeah, it has been a, an incredibly long time. Though in Guatemala, because of the uh, extended nature of the internal armed conflict and the very high levels of impunity and the kind of co-optation of the Guatemalan state by forces that were very linked uh, to the Guatemalan military and very disinterested in actually pursuing 
investigations and prosecution against members of the military, there really wasn't a context in which these cases were able to move forward until the last few years. So what we've seen in the last few years has been a flurry of, you know, what the international community would call transitional justice cases. Um, cases from 10, 20, 30 years ago that are finally being heard in Guatemalan courts. So the, the genocide case in that respect is not unique, uh, though I think because of the nature of the case, um, the fact that the defendant is uh, one of the most recognized figures from Guatemala's war, uh, that he was the head of state um, during the time that he's being charged with these human rights violations, um, this, these aspects make it a very, very controversial case. And what makes it even more so is the specific charge of genocide. There have been a number of other cases that relate to um, other types of war crimes. And while they have been controversial, they have not brought forth the type of conflict and national discussion that this case has, which on the one hand is extremely positive that people are talking about these issues. But on the other hand, it has meant that it is very, very difficult to move forward. Every single stage is met with um, excessive motions on the part of Riosmont's defense team. Um, he's been changing his lawyers throughout the process, asking for judges to be re recused. There has been a public slander campaign against public officials and uh, victims and, and their representatives throughout this entire process. There may be little hope that this case actually comes to a conclusion uh, in Guatemalan courts um, as part of the retrial process. And doesn't, and doesn't the fact that, that this case, the soap opera aspects that you've outlined for us, aren't those symptomatic of still the power that the former members of the military, like this former dictator, still, still wield in the Guatemalan system? Definitely. Um, that power has been demonstrated. Kind of, there, there was a curtain that was drawn back, essentially, again, um, to expose a lot of the corruption in the Guatemalan justice system because of the genocide case. And everyone knew that there was a lot of corruption happening. But uh, those, uh, the kind of acts of corruption and the type of kind of pandering to special interests and the extreme influence of powerful people outside the court really showed their teeth during this process. And it became extremely clear uh, that Guatemalan courts were not independent and that they were very, very weak to take on a case of this nature. Um, though I think it's important to mention that there are individuals within the Guatemalan justice system and many of the judges that have been working and, and hearing the genocide case who are independent judges who are dealing with uh, death threats, with harassment at the workplace, with all sorts of very challenging circumstances, uh, public defamation, and who have maintained their independence throughout this process and are really seeking to do their jobs as independent uh, public servants. Um, that said, they're working within a system that is bent against them and a system that is really set up to ensure impunity for powerful actors rather than to ensure justice for Guatemala's most vulnerable citizens. So what you have here in this case is really that, that those two elements coming up against each other. Thousands of indigenous Guatemalans, and in this case, Ishil Guatemalans, who are demanding justice from a system that has really never served their interests 
and that you know just 30 years ago was carrying out acts of genocide against them coming up against with uh, the kind of the most powerful or one of the most powerful segments in Guatemala's um, political and economic realm which is the military and the kind of wealthy oligarchy that's linked to the military and economic uh, kind of foundation of the country and and that I think is what's causing so much tension in this case and it's also um, you know becomes very relevant for other transitional justice cases uh, to understand you know how how these influences play out on the Guatemala justice system Thanks for educating us as always. Kelsey Alfred Jones, the director of the Guatemala Human Rights Commission, our guest today on Latin Pulse, joining us via Skype from Washington, D.C. Thank you. Thank you so much. And now a programming note. We'll be taking a bit of a summer break next week, but you can find us back online Friday, August the 28th. This summer, Latin Pulse is available on a variety of new online platforms, including the new website, Latin America Goes Global, You can find us there at latinamericagoesglobal, all one word, dot O-R-G. If you're looking for earlier editions of Latin Pulse, we're available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Flipboard. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, dot O-R-G, and then slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse for our entire team. Production assistant Sierra Hancock and announcer Jim Singer. I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2015 Las Rocas Productions.